This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Millions of Christians gather every week to hear sermons preached, we trust, from God's Word. Believers read and study the Bible. Pastors and elders study it and teach it to others. But we do not always agree on how to understand Scripture. How often have you heard someone say, well, that's your interpretation, as if there were as many possible interpretations of a passage as there are interpreters. Dennis Johnson is Professor Emeritus of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California, where he taught for 36 years and from which he recently retired. For his entire ministry, he has been concerned with the interpretation of Scripture as a student, as a pastor, as a professor of New Testament, and then as professor of practical theology, teaching men how to preach the whole counsel of God from all the Scriptures. The latest of his books is Journeys with Jesus. Every path in the Bible leads us to Christ. And that was published in 2018, very recently. This title, along with all his others, is available from the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Well, thank you very much, Scott. Why another book on biblical interpretation? I must have or have had over the life of my library 10 books or 15 books, who knows how many. So here is another one. I probably have even more since I worked in New (laughs) Testament and taught hermeneutics, biblical interpretation for years. This one actually has an interesting origin in Genesis. In 2007, I wrote a pretty good-sized book on preaching called Him We Proclaim, ran to 430-some pages, and that was mainly for pastors and seminary students, and that led to invitations to teach church Bible conferences and other things like that. And then I thought, Him We Proclaim is long and... And deep and engages in some of the arguments that pastors and theologians and biblical interpreters argue about. And I thought maybe I could take parts of him we proclaim, make it shorter, more accessible, but also expand a little bit because I've become convinced first, as you said, that we need to preach Christ from every part of the scripture. This is what Jesus taught his disciples in the last chapter of Luke's gospel. It's what we see consistently in the way the New Testament apostles and authors handle the Old Testament. So that's important. It's important for preachers to do that, to model that in their preaching and to bring that gospel of God's grace home to They're congregants. But congregants also kind of need to learn, and sometimes they can learn through watching and hearing their pastors, and sometimes they need more how to read the Bible in a way that shows that Christ is at the center and the Bible speaks to their lives through Jesus. So I started to work on a book that came out in 2015 called Walking with Jesus Through His Word, and it was a lot shorter. It was only hmm, 270 pages. I thought, this is great. Now everybody's (laughs) going to use it. Well, yeah, and some did. And some, you know, lay Christians used them in Bible studies and so on. I got some really encouraging feedback. I was actually kind of hoping also to serve the leaders of the global church. And kind of in the back of my mind, I thought if this is really useful to them, there might be a reason to translate into other languages. We live, as you know, so close to Mexico, and Spanish seemed to be just a natural first one. So I sent Walking with Jesus to some folks that I trusted their judgment, their knowledge of especially Latin America, Mexico, and Point South. And I got several really encouraging remarks, like, this would be very helpful, along with, but of course, it's way too long. (laughs) 
and particularly long for translation to Spanish. Now, one of those who responded was Dr. Richard Ramsey, who had served for a couple decades, actually, in Chile with the Presbyterian Church in America ministry down there, and more recently has been working with Third Millennium Ministries. And Rich and I graduated from Westminster in the same year, Westminster, Philadelphia. So we hadn't really kept close contact over the years, but I know he had done some writing that was published in Spanish and some in English as well by PNR. And uh, he made not only the observation that walking with Jesus is just too long, but he made this wonderful offer. He said, I will abridge it for the sake of a Spanish translation. And then if I, Dennis, and PNR thought that maybe a shorter version would be useful in English, he would be happy for us to use that as well. And I was interested and PNR was interested. And so this is actually Journeys with Jesus is an abridgment of walking with Jesus with several improvements that my friend and classmate Richard Ramsey has introduced as well. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking with Dennis Johnson today about his book, Journeys with Jesus, Every Path in the Bible Leads to Christ. You say in the um, early part of the book that you are making an audacious claim. You say that the Bible has an organizing theme, or perhaps better said, an organizing person. Around here, that wouldn't be a shocking thing to say, but there are places where to say that Christ is at the center of Scripture and is the organizing person and theme of Scripture, that would be disturbing. I've even heard that claim called allegorizing. And I've seen it claimed very recently as imposing a template on Scripture. So, Dr. Johnson, are you just making things up and imposing a grid on Scripture out of your own mind and your own theology? Or are you getting this stuff from Scripture? I'm getting this stuff from Scripture. Okay. Oh, do you want me to elaborate? <laughs> how do we know that? I mean, how, how do we well, know that? Because you're Reformed, and Reformed people have a systematic theology, right? and we get accused of imposing that system on the text. Well, we come to the Bible expecting that because it is the Word of God, who is the definer of truth, he is truth, and he defines truth, and because we know that this wonderful personal, tri-person God is a purposeful, wise God who controls all of history, we anticipate that there will be a pattern, a continuity to his purposes in his work in history and to every part of his inspired scriptures, despite the variety of ages in which they're given, the variety of human authors through whom they're given, we anticipate that through it all, the voice of the one Holy Spirit is going to be speaking a consistent message to us. And that message is correlated with God's work in the history of redemption to bring the Redeemer at the perfect moment in time into human history, the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is God the Son and is also descended from David and the Messianic King, the promised deliverer, spoken of so often in the scriptures of the Old Testament, sometimes very explicitly, obviously, in David's anticipation of a king who would be far better than David ever was, and Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant, on which I think pretty much all Bible-believing Christians recognize Isaiah 53. Since the New Testament tells us it's about Christ, yeah. we don't want to 
kind of argue with inspired biblical commentary in the New Testament. Okay, I agree. I think the listener agrees, but let's nail that down just a little bit. Where does the New Testament tell us explicitly that Isaiah 53 is about Jesus? Well, one place certainly is in Acts chapter 8, when uh, Philip, one of the seven servants who was originally set apart to care for widows' needs, then as part of the scattering of the church after the martyrdom of Stephen, and Philip encounters eunuch from Ethiopia, a high government official, who... just happens (laughs) to be reading Isaiah 53, this description of the suffering servant. The Ethiopian says, I don't know who this is about. Is the prophet talking about himself, someone else? And scripture says, Philip began from that text and began to tell him the good news about Jesus. So there's the most explicit, but we hear in other passages of the epistles, 1 Peter, for example, unquestioned allusions whole phrases that are drawn from Isaiah 53 and applied directly to Jesus Christ and his suffering. Okay, so let me push back just a little bit. Granted that here you have an explicit place in Scripture where it says this is about Jesus, but why should we think that the rest of it is about Jesus where it doesn't explicitly or very clearly implicitly tell us that? Because there is a rule that uh, lots of Christians follow. The rule is this, that we read the Bible literally where possible. That's one of the rules. And lots of Christians start with the assumption that God God's plan in history was to have a national people. Now, Jesus in some way is a part of that plan, and it's wonderful that Jesus came, died, and made salvation possible. But in a sense, the unifying thread of Scripture isn't Jesus as much as it is this national Israelite people. And it was, and it's going to come back. And that's the thing that really holds everything together. How do you relate what you're doing to that approach to Scripture? Oh, there are 20 or 30 questions tucked in there. Thank you very much. But you're right. I've heard them all. So they're all good questions. And, and, you know, I think, let me give you 20 or 30 answers. Maybe, not quite. First of all, I think we need to start asking the question about what ties the Bible together in the beginning. Okay. So we start with God, the creator, and human beings made in his image to know him, to relate to him, Eden portrayed as a kind of a preview of a later sanctuary, tabernacle, temple, where Adam and Eve are to enjoy God, glorify God, guard the garden from infection, from defilement, and serve. Both of those terms are used of later priests. And then sin enters the picture. And in the wake of that horrible folly and rebellion when first Eve and then Adam, who was covenantally responsible, disobey God. Then we see God coming and confronting them with their sin and ultimately confronting Satan, who spoke through the serpent, giving this indictment, Genesis 3.15, we often call it the first gospel, where God says to Satan, I'm going to put hostility, enmity between you and the woman. She's not on your side anymore. In a sense, he's saying, I'm intervening in grace. I'm bringing back Eve back over onto my side of the war and between your offspring and hers, and her offspring will crush your head as you crush wound his heel. That is, I would say, 
the announcement of the coming of the Messiah eventually in a very, pardon the pun, seed form, offspring seed, but that sets the agenda for everything else. That's really important. And it's important for the listener to know, and maybe for you to explain just briefly, that when you interpret that passage, I mean, it doesn't say the word Jesus in Genesis 3, but you are interpreting this legitimately, fairly. And this is not something that you and I made up, or that John Calvin made up, or that the Reformed made up. This is a very traditional way of reading this verse, Genesis 3. And it really was given as a program, as a way of helping us understand the whole story of Scripture and keeping it together. Exactly. How do you know that? It goes back to the early church fathers, for sure, reading it in that way. And then, of course, we find later in the Scriptures these references and allusions to Genesis 3.15 that speak of... Well, for example, all the way at the other end of the Bible was Revelation, Revelation 12, where we see this heavenly envision, this heavenly woman who is about to give birth to a son who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. So that's drawn from Psalm 2. So that's a promise of the Davidic Messiah, the dragon, who is the ancient serpent. So clearly identified again in the light of Genesis 3, wants to destroy your son and cannot. So there you have at the other end of the Bible, a reference all the way back to Genesis 3 and about that son who's clearly presented in the vision of John. It's symbolic, but it's clear. And I think pretty much all evangelical Christians recognize that that vision there at the beginning of Revelation 12 is an expression of the incarnation and the redemptive ministry and exaltation of Jesus Christ. So there's that. Uh, We could go tracking through Genesis, so we get to Abraham and the promise that in Abraham and his offspring, all the nations will be blessed. He does set Abraham and his offspring, biological offspring, off from the nations. So there is a role for the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel. But ultimately, the goal of that is blessing to all the nations, to all the peoples on the earth. And uh, as Paul drawing on this offspring seed imagery, Galatians 3, says that the offspring of Abraham, in the very choice of the number of the noun, God is indicating, it's singular, not plural, you could read it as collective, but the focus is on the singularity. That is an announcement that ultimately blessing comes to us only through that one who is the faithful seed of Abraham, namely Jesus. Yeah, that's really important. Paul says, and not to seeds, meaning many, but to seed who is one, and that seed was Christ. So the listener needs to know that when you tell us that Jesus is at the center of Scripture, you're not just making things up, and you're not inventing a paradigm that you like, that you find satisfying and exciting. You've really been driven to this way of reading Scripture by Scripture itself. You've been paying attention to the story all the way through, to the hints, but then you have these explicit places where we're not just relying on inferences and hints anymore. It really is made clear. Another one that comes to mind, maybe not quite as clear, but it picks up this theme, Romans 16, 20, where Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That makes no sense if Jesus is not the head crusher promised in Genesis chapter 3. Exactly. That's Paul's promise to those who are in Christ. Yeah. Because of our union with Christ, his victory is ours as well. Yeah. And there's another place in Scripture that has really influenced you. I mean, obviously all of Scripture and many particular places, but one of them with which you have worked over the years is Luke 24 and Emmaus Road. After this break... 
walk us through that passage a little bit and help us to understand why Luke 24 is so important for the way that we interpret Scripture. So, you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We've completed Westminster Village, a beautiful new place for you to live on campus. Open now, Westminster Village features eight residential buildings, 64 apartments including one, two, and three-bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kemp, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of Westminster Village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So Dennis, what is the importance of Luke chapter 24 for your understanding of Scripture as a series of streams all leading to Christ? Well, Luke 24 is so crucial because in this chapter, the record of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to his followers on the very day of his resurrection, we have probably the most explicit statement of how Jesus was intending to teach his disciples to read the Old Testament. It's not the only place in the Gospels. Uh, John 5, Jesus accuses his critics of not listening to Moses and not recognizing that Moses spoke of him. But Luke 24 is amazing. We need to remember it comes really at the hinge point between Luke's volume 1, which we call the Gospel according to Luke, and Luke's volume 2, which is the Acts of the Apostles. And of course, in the Acts of the Apostles, we hear disciples who, for most of Luke's Gospel, for most of Jesus' ministry were either clueless when he was teaching or sometimes there were little glimmers of faith and then there was heartbreak at his crucifixion. And in Acts, we hear them preaching boldly. We hear them drawing on a variety of Old Testament passages and showing that they're fulfilled in Christ. And that in itself leads us to ask the question, where did they learn to read the Bible like this? Luke 24 answers the question. They learned it from Jesus. So you have the two on the road to Emmaus, and they are joined by a stranger to them. Luke tells us it's Jesus, but their eyes have been kept from recognizing him initially. And um, they're downcast, their hopes are shattered, and um, he seems not to understand what has just transpired, that this great, mighty prophet on whom they hoped he was going to redeem Israel has been executed. And even though they'd heard reports of the women before they left Jerusalem, that they'd seen a vision of angels that announced his resurrection, they obviously didn't believe that. So the stranger rebukes them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah, that the Christ, should suffer these things and so enter into his glory. And he begins with Moses and the prophets. And in the context of a Hebrew way of looking at scripture, the prophets would include not just what we think of as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 
the latter prophets, but they would include the historical books as well, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. So he really takes them through a lot of scriptures. We don't know exactly which ones, but a large range and shows to them the necessity of suffering for the Messiah, suffering to death, and then the promise of an exaltation to glory for the Messiah. Then, of course, later in the night, maybe even in the wee hours of what we would think of as Monday morning, when they have recognized Jesus at dinner in Emmaus as he blesses and breaks the bread and then disappears, they hustle back to Jerusalem and they meet up with the larger group of the 11 now. And the report is that he has appeared, at least to Cephas, to Peter, and Jesus appears. And even though there's been a resurrection appearance, there's still among some a misgiving about whether he's truly, really, physically, bodily raised from the dead. So he eats fish to demonstrate the reality of his glorious resurrection body. And then he starts to teach this large group from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which again in the Hebrew canon heads the third category of the Old Testament canon, the writings, the Psalms, and in much more detail, his sufferings, his resurrection, his ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the role of the church as witnesses to the ends of the earth, all of that, he says, this is in the Old Testament scriptures. So he's really giving them a kind of encapsulated instruction in how to interpret the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, as we would say, or as the Hebrews would say, from Genesis to Second Chronicles, since their canon's a little different. So Luke twenty four forty four. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So you're saying that when Jesus said the law of Moses, that's the Torah, the first five books, the prophets covers the historical books, and then the minor prophets, the major prophets, right. and the Psalms are the wisdom literature. So that covers all of the Hebrew Bible, the Aramaic scriptures, everything. And Jesus intentionally is saying to his disciples, listen, the whole thing is about me. It points to me. It leads to me. And that's what they have yet to understand. And something has to happen to them in order for them to understand. Well, yes. I mean, this is not just a purely intellectual thing. It's not purely thing. intellectual. And that's really important. I mean, because sometimes, again, people say, well, you reform people. You're big on the brain. Right. But you're not always so big on the heart. That's not fair. But that's what people say. Yeah. And so what I think I know you're going to say next answers that objection, doesn't it? Well, it does. And, uh, you know, it's striking that in Luke 24, we read about opening in two senses. He opened the scriptures to them. Now we could read that simply as giving them the information teaching, but he also opened their hearts. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And obviously this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to empower the apostles to bear witness. But clearly the work of the Holy Spirit is key at this point. And we actually see the fruit of that in Acts 2 before the descent of the Spirit on Pentecost because by Acts 1, Peter is already interpreting scripture in a new way. He's saying, now we understand what was going on with Judas and his treachery. Now we understand it was necessary for the Messiah to be betrayed by a close friend and for that close friend to be replaced by a faithful witness. One of the first things he does is to appeal to Psalm 110 and to say, listen, 
Psalm 110 is not about David. We know where David's buried. We can show you his grave, right? This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. He is the fulfillment. He is the one to whom the Father said, sit at my right hand, and you are a priest on the order of Melchizedek. He is the other figure in Psalm 110. So you're not just making stuff up. You're really just following what Peter did, what John did, what Jesus did, what Paul does, what the writer to the Hebrews does. Exactly. Yeah. Of course, Peter's Pentecost sermon not only ends with Psalm 110, with Christ seated at the right hand of the Father and therefore pouring out the Spirit. But Peter's sermon begins, first of all, by putting the outpouring of the Spirit and the preaching of the mighty deeds of God in the languages of the nations in terms of Joel 2, and then connects those through Psalm 16, which says, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So you've got that whole trajectory that what you see now is what God had promised through Joel. His words would be spoken in the many, many languages, prophetic word by all kinds of people, sons and daughters, manservants, maidservants, old and young, because though Christ did die, and that's crucial in the purpose and plan of God, it's the center of so many things. He was also raised again. God had declared that his holy one, the one who was really holy, could not be held by death. David was held by death. When he died, he was buried. We know where his tomb is, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. He's not held by death. And therefore, because he's at the right hand, he's poured out this display of the Spirit speaking the gospel in the languages of the nations. So you see that promise to Abraham, that covenant promise, I'm going to bless the nations through your offspring. We see that taking a quantum leap forward with the death, resurrection of Christ, his ascension, his outpouring of the Spirit, and now the witness going out in the languages of the peoples. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking with Dennis Johnson today about his book, Journeys with Jesus, Every Path in the Bible Leads to Christ. Okay, you've convinced me that this is how they did it. It's in the Bible, and you've given me lots of concrete evidence just in this short conversation that you and I have been having. But can I do this? I mean, it's one thing for Peter and Paul and John and Jude and everybody else in the New Testament. They're all inspired, even the writer to the Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so maybe they had a kind of special insight a special system of interpreting scripture, a hermeneutic. But you and I, we need a different method, don't we? And can't we find that method in the work of turn of the century, you know, end of the 19th century, early 20th century, German scholars and other scholars? Don't they kind of set a different pattern? And shouldn't we just follow them? Because after all, you and I are just ordinary people and not apostles and not inspired by the Spirit as we interpret scripture. Well, to take those exemplars that you just mentioned there, late 19th, 19th, early 20th century, we would call them historical critical scholars. Their method, frankly, begins with the presupposition that the Bible from cover to cover is not necessarily the Word of God. In fact, those who came before them in the Enlightenment said, we have to set aside that dogma that had been inherited from the early church and the medieval church and the reformers, that however many human authors are speaking in Scripture over how many periods, the church had always thought and believed that they were all 
ultimately moved by the Holy Spirit who defines truth. And the historical critical scholars said, no, we're going to set that aside. We're not denying it necessarily. But that assumption that this is all the word of the sovereign God who controls all of history, we won't regard that. We'll just look at each discrete author in terms of their own individual historical context, not let later texts like the New Testament influence how we read older texts like the Old Testament. So I would say, frankly, I would rather follow the apostles' lead than the critics' lead. It's true. I don't have inspiration from the Holy Spirit the way the apostles do. Absolutely not. But for that very reason, it seems to me wiser for me, humbly, to try to kind of discern the ways in which the inspired New Testament authors read Scripture, the patterns that emerge, the whole theme of God's covenant with his people, and the role of the Lord of the covenant and the servant of the covenant, and how Jesus really fulfills both absolutely, and therefore is not only the mediator, but the guarantor of our covenant bond, because his covenant obedience as the servant so different from our first father, Adam, and of course, obviously different from us too, children of Adam. That's what guarantees covenant grace for us in the plan and the purpose of God. Or the themes of prophet, priest, and king, which are embedded all the way through Old Testament redemptive history, even before Israel is formed as a nation, really, through the Exodus and the meeting at Sinai. We have references to prophet. We have the glimpses of priesthood. We have royal functions. All those kinds of things, and how those all converge in Christ as the mediator of the Word of God, revelation, prophet, as the mediator of the presence of God and all that that entails as the priests serve in the sanctuary, offer sacrifices for atonement. Hebrews, of course, is all over this. It's glorious. And as Christ is the fulfillment of the king, the king's role to both judge justly and to fight and defend his people. So all of those patterns are identified in New Testament writings as coming to fulfillment in Christ. So when we look at Old Testament texts that may or may not have a specific, explicit New Testament commentary on a passage, but if we see prophets or priests or kings, we know that in some way they are sketches, Hebrews uses the language of shadows, always finite, always limited, always flawed, but they're kind of sketched previews of the perfect prophet, priest, and king who will come. Oh, Bob Dylan said in, I don't know, 1979, 1980, you got to serve somebody. And we could paraphrase him by saying, you have to imitate somebody. It's not possible to read the Bible as if no one's ever read it before. You're following some method, even if you don't know it. You're following some method, and you're saying, listen, we can see with our eyes how the apostles did it. Now, we might not get it right exactly, but we can come close. We can follow those clues, and we can do what they did, because we're necessarily going to have to try to imitate somebody's interpretation of Scripture. And we might as well imitate the apostles who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, as they gave us Spirit-inspired interpretations of the Old Testament. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, the role of the Holy Spirit in working in them such that the words they wrote were the words he was breathing out is absolutely crucial. And then, I mean, we could kind of put alongside of that the reality that we see in Luke 24, that at least these core apostles whose preaching we begin to hear in the book of Acts were actually taught by Jesus himself that this is the topic. And we hear even there in Luke 24, this hint that the Holy Spirit was at work as Christ opened their minds and hearts to receive what he was teaching. 
And it's not arbitrary. I mean, you've listed out so many different kinds of evidences for us. And one of the most important ones that you've just touched on is this prophet, priest, and king, that there were prophets, priests, and kings of a sort even before national Israel. And of course, those are the three offices in the theocracy under Moses and David, right, for a thousand years or 1,500 years for prophets, priests, and kings. And here comes Jesus, who is regularly and frequently portrayed to us in Scripture as the prophet, exactly. the priest, yeah. and the king. People may ask, well, where did you come up with these three? And you said it's all over the place. There are specific passages like Deuteronomy 17 and 18, where one by one, Moses goes through those three offices as he's preparing Israel to enter the land. There are texts in Jeremiah 2 and 18, where those who held those offices in the Old Testament, who failed in those offices, are rebuked and told that they will be removed. And then when you come into the New Testament, you have, well, again, a text like Hebrews, which even in the first four verses really describes Jesus' prophetic role. God, who spoke in former days through the prophets to the fathers, has now spoken to us in these last days in the Son. His kingly role, that he is the heir of all things, he inherits all things, that he's taken his seat at the right hand of God. And his priestly role, which of course Hebrews is going to expand greatly, in the first four verses, it's simply having made purification for sins. But wow, that's the big thing. So Hebrews is saying, I want to tell you about all three of these great offices that come to their full expression, to come into their own in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.